Welcome to the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. This time, we're looking at autism, and our guest is Lorraine Madden, who is a clinical director and child and adolescent educational psychologist at the EPT Clinic in Kilkenny. Lorraine is a member of the Psychological Society of Ireland's special interest group in autism. Uh, the group is made up of members within this society who promote research and best practice in relation to autism. Lorraine, you're very well. Welcome. Thanks, Al. Yeah, delighted to be here today with you. Very good, and we're doing this on on Zoom due to the uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, although whether you would have travelled up to Dublin or not from Lovical Kenny, I don't know. <laughs> I would prefer to be where you are. Just before we get into this, there's an interesting story as to how you got into it. Yeah, when I started my career um, studying as a primary school teacher, and during my early years studying, I just uh, um, answered an ad in the paper to be a tutor for a, a child with autism in the family home. And really, it was a job that I took that I loved. I went into the family. I really saw what it was like firsthand in terms of adapting supports and and supporting the family. And it it influenced my career. Um, I I really uh, connected with the autistic brain. I was so interested in how it it saw the world a little bit more differently. Um, And then, of course, when you start working with one family, I met other families. And it was just such a privilege to be at that level within the family home, working alongside the family and alongside the child. and, and, And that was really the beginning of my my career in autism. So you moved from primary school then into into psychology? Yeah, I, I worked for a few years and then again, it gave me the opportunity to work with children in another setting and children with autism in the mainstream classroom and in learning support and in resource teaching. So a different way of supporting children with autism. So again, a, a lot of learning um, in that part of my career. And then I decided to go back, finish my, my master's in UCD and finish off my my studies to become an educational psychologist. Okay, well, let's let's start at the beginning, I suppose, as far as autism is concerned. What exactly is autism? In terms of the um, the, the 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 actual professional um, description of it, it is a neurodevelopmental presentation. Neuro meaning that it it is um, it develops in the brain and the neurological system. In other words, that the child is born with autism, um, and then obviously goes on and develops as a child and teenager and adult. But it maintains it stays with the person throughout their life, um, and, and sometimes then it can change in terms of its presentation as the child becomes a teenager, an adult, and so on. Um, but when I'm chatting with um, with parents and with teachers, um, the way I, I describe it and the way I see it every day in work is that it's just a different way of viewing or thinking about the world and experiencing the world. Um, mainly in two areas, in, in that social interaction and social connection uh, and communication piece, um, and then in the behavioural piece, it is at the moment diagnosed behaviourally, in other words, from observation. Um, so they're the two main areas um, that, that that is just a little bit different um, to that of non-autistic uh, individuals. And there are a lot of high profile individuals who have autism. 
There are, because I suppose we have broadened um, our understanding. We're, we're learning all the time as professionals of what autism is. And now we understand that um, autism is so different in different people and it can bring wonderful strengths and um, brilliant talents. Um, and that's now becoming, I suppose, recognised in mainstream uh, populations that that, that the autistic way of seeing the world and experiencing the world can actually bring wonderful positives. I mean, some of some, the list you, you've sent up is fascinating. Susan Boyle, we know, Tim Burton, Lewis Carroll, the author of uh, Alice in Wonderland, Charles yeah. Darwin. How yeah. do we know at this stage? Yeah, we don't know for definite that mm. some of those people have autism. That was a list in terms of um, some of the traits. But there are a few people on that list that have come out and discussed their diagnosis. For example, Susan Boyle has. Mm-hmm. And she would have come out and talked about, um, you know, um, how how some of the social stuff was different for difficult for her. Um, and I suppose we're now seeing that you can brilliant in your career or in specific areas and you can really have an eye for detail and yet still struggle with some of the social stuff some of the behavioral stuff um so yeah we're just learning all the time al how obvious is it that somebody has autism the recent um kind of prevalence rates put autism between one and 1.5 percent um of the population so when you think about it if you were to go into like a you know a, a a workplace or a big secondary school like one or two people in every hundred will have autism so that's quite a lot sometimes you know and it's obvious and because maybe it's autism with other um presentations or with other difficulties as well for example you could have autism with speech and language difficulties or with learning difficulties or with motor difficulties but then you can have autism without any of those two it's 1 to 1.5% of the population currently. Is it fair to assume that maybe 50 years ago it was 1 to 1.5% then as well? Yeah. So, so And there's a little bit of variation. It's 2% in some areas. Okay, but yeah, we'll but, but even, let, let's, call, let's call it 1%. Yeah. But, but 40, yeah. 50 years ago, it, it certainly wasn't diagnosed. Yeah. And I think that's one of the key points. We have just broadened the diagnosis so much more. And we understand, um, I suppose, the more mild or more social presentations now that we just wouldn't have diagnosed um, years ago. And then the other big change in terms of diagnosing is that For years, it was kind of seen as a male difficulty or a male disorder. We weren't really identifying some of the the females, some of the girls and the the women, because they present quite differently. Is it it more subtle in in their case? Girls, young girls, and then obviously young girls and adolescents and women are often a little bit more socially motivated to hide difficulties and to fit in. That's, That's just often part of the female versus male and disposition so it seems in the research that females are developing these wonderful coping strategies in some senses um, but it's also putting them under a little bit of pressure and they're becoming a little bit stressed and some of the mental health pieces are developing and they do a lot of camouflaging and masking and so they're better at hiding the difficulties that for example going into school, knowing, okay, this is a social environment. People are going to be observing me. I should fit in. I should behave like that that girl and like this group. And then working really hard to act, to copy, to mimic. Um, Then they're being kind of missed 
by some of the professionals that they're coming into to um, contact with. And then they come home, Al, and they're often absolutely exhausted from all of this. Just coming home and maybe being really distressed then with someone that's that's um, that they trust and that they're able to be themselves with. Um, so it, it can be really difficult for, for some of the girls. And, and then we're missing them because of all of this. Now, we're getting better for sure. And there's a lot of talk about gender differences in the, the research and amongst mm-hmm. professionals and the general public now. Um, but it's definitely a big area that's emerging. Are there any obvious signs of autism if I'm, a, if I'm a parent and looking out for it in my children? So because it's neurodevelopmental, the onset is typically in the early years. So um, things to look out for with maybe a young child, a toddler. Um, one of the first things that, that we would look out for is speech and language development. Now, of course, you can have speech and language development and not have autism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is one of the things. Um, if there is maybe a delayed speech um, and maybe in combination with poor eye contact or maybe a child is maybe just happy or doing their own thing, not really seeking out parents, not really interested in kind of looking at or or going over to other children, um, just a little bit more um, comfortable on their own and then maybe sometimes even having difficulties with that. A big one is if you're going to, for example, family gatherings, um, you know, when a child might get just upset with the group, with the busyness, with the noise or all of that. So that piece, that social communication and social interaction piece in combination with um, some rigid, restricted or repetitive or sensory behaviours. Um, and that can look like, um, again, in a young child, it can look like, um, you know, a, a way of playing whereby you might organise things or line things up more than play with them um, as they were designed to be played with. So you might see a young child maybe lining up all their cars or flipping the car upside down and just flicking the wheels rather than driving it along and going, Burm, burm, yeah. beep, beep. Right. Um, or you might find that they might get a bit upset if you changed things. Maybe you might change around their bedroom or the house, or you might go a different route to school to pick up another child. And that would maybe stress them out, or uh, they might get a little bit upset by that. It might cause them a bit of anxiety. Um, and then there's some um, other behaviours that would be more, I suppose, typical or classical of autism uh, in in terms of maybe hand flapping, children maybe walking up on their toes, rocking, spinning in circles. Um, And those are sensory behaviours and regulating behaviours in that it often relaxes the child and it does settle them and and they do feel soothed by them. so that would be, I suppose, early indicators. And then, of course, it looks different as you go through school age mm. and adulthood. There's a lot there to look out for. I mean, if you, if you are a parent and, and you have a concern that your children might be autistic, what would you advise them to do? I suppose one of the first um, great services that we have in this country is the public health nurses. And they're great to do their developmental checks. So if you do notice something, and I suppose the earlier, the better, Al, sometimes people don't do anything for a while because they think, oh, sure, to come on it's better to just get it checked and clarified early on so linking in with your public health nurse and if you have a little concern to tell her to say listen I'm a bit concerned he's not really talking or he he's she's a little bit um um in her own world she doesn't really come out and kind of make eye contact or chat with me or babble or to, to link in with your public health nurse and and or your GP um, they'd be your first port of call and then if if your GP or your public health nurse pick up on yeah do you know what I'm a little bit concerned too let's just get this checked out then 
they'll initiate and referrals into maybe HSE services or you can go to the psychologicalsociety.ie and you can find a psychologist on the website there, either someone that's registered and chartered to maybe do an initial assessment um, and then you can maybe do a little bit of intervention and go from there in terms of clarifying. What about if you're an adult and you think you might have autism? What, what do you do then? And actually, that's happening more and more, Al. And you know when that's happening a lot for me is when I've just finished a diagnosis with a child, maybe, or a a, a teenager, and the parent might say, do you know what, I'd like to clarify if I have autism too. And so it's coming up that way in terms of my own practice. And then also people are hearing more about autism Mm -hmm. on the radio, on the TV and films. And they're saying, you know what, I'd like to get checked if if I've always felt that 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 piece of my life I was a bit stressed socially or I found it quite difficult socially to manage things so if that is the case again you can go to your GP you can ask um, and then you can go to the psychological society.ie for a psychologist um, who can diagnose just to say that in terms of the diagnosis it's usually led by a psychologist but best practice guidelines do recommend that it's um, it's carried out in a multidisciplinary team multidisciplinary meaning that there's different people from different um, disciplines. So, for example, you might have psychology and occupational therapy or psychology and speech and language therapy. Um, And and adults can go ahead now and get their own um, diagnosis clarified as well. What can people do, I suppose, if we start off with with children first and then move on to adults uh, to make their lives a little bit easier living with autism? I mean, kids in school or or adults in work, what can they do? So I, I, from the research, um, people find and, and, and the autistic community in general have, have found that um, using a, a couple of different evidence based strategies do do help and do work. So one of those is um, using visual supports or structures. So there's two different ones there and then they can be combined. So what do I mean by visual supports? And often when you say that to a parent or a teacher, they think of this big system that they have to invest in with all this these laminated things, uh, pictures, which of course can be very helpful. Mm. Visual supports. You and I use visual supports every day. I'm sure with our phones, with our with post-its, with notes, and uh, with color coordinating. So if we bring the visual supports to a very basic level with a young child, uh, a visual support might be first and then. So ex- for example, first we're going to have brekkie. You show like the breakfast spoon, and then we're going to school. And then you show the school bag. There's two physical visual mm. prompts, the spoon and the, the school bag. If you then move on to the next level of development, maybe to a child that's a little bit more verbal um, or a little bit um, older in terms of their level, and they're able to maybe manage pictures, you could do a little little schedule for them in the morning time, up out of bed and um, get dressed, uh, uh, downstairs for the brekkie, brush the teeth, to the door coat on and out into the car and you could have little either photographs of each of those steps or you could um, get little generic images off the internet and you could have them there that the child is following there's another lovely visual support what kind of age are you talking about for that so it depends on the developmental mm. level of the child rather than the child's age. Right. So that might be appropriate if a child is flying it with their language and their problem solving. And you could use that with maybe a, chi- a child of four, five, six. Right. Then maybe an older child that maybe is, has maybe a learning difficulty as well and is struggling to maybe process all the talk and the information. You could use that for a child maybe up to 10, 11, mm. 12, mm. depending. And they're just small visual prompts. Small visual prompts, Hmm. yeah, yeah. And that can do two things. Number one, 
it hugely increases um, the child's comprehension. They mm. get it. They know, oh, yeah, this is what's happening next. And then number two, it drops anxiety levels. The child isn't as worried about what's going to happen next because uh, they're seeking maybe that structure and that predictability. It gives it straight away. And often then I go in at secondary school. So on the next level, we were talking about 11, 12 there, maybe up to 14 or 15. And I might get called into a school because maybe the child is really starting to, well, the teenager at that stage get maybe a little bit um, more anxious again, or maybe some behaviours are starting to emerge. And often it's because they've taken the visuals away. They think, mm. sure, they're old enough now they don't need them. But actually... It's about adapting the visual rather than taking it away. So at that stage, maybe in secondary school, having maybe a notebook with writing out lists of to-dos that you can tick off or cross off or having a system around maybe reminders in your phone or um, a maybe a visual timetable that's colour coordinated. So not to drop that visual, to just adapt it. And then if you use them properly, right into adulthood. We all use our visual prompts, but adapting them and, and keeping them structured right into the workforce. And that can make a person um, it can enable a person to be independent as opposed to relying on other people to prompt them. They're developing their own system of structure and of visual prompting, which can really foster independence. I mean, we do a lot of those things normally in, in work. I mean, I do a to do list every certainly uh, every day, every morning and you never get to the end of it, but you, you do your best. <laughs> but at least you know what you have to do. Uh, so there are things that that uh, that everybody does. Uh, mm-hmm. that maybe we start the the autistic person off uh, with doing them a little bit earlier in their lives. Yeah, and structuring it a little bit more that maybe there would be one for the morning, one for the afternoon, one mm-hmm. for the evening. It's just bringing in that little bit of structure as well and the visual um, link with the structure. And that can really make the, the, I suppose, the world of the autistic person a much more predictable, calm place. Now, there's ongoing research into autism. It's happening all the time. Is there anything new emerging that you've come across recently? Yeah, so I I think the area of girls, as we spoke about earlier, is a huge area um, in terms of um, just the way that we need to change the way we do diagnostics um, and assessment. Like, for example, most of the tools that we use to assess autism, they were developed with uh, boys, not girls. So as you can imagine, if you develop an assessment tool with the majority of the children being boys, you're not going to capture the same piece around girls. So we're starting to acknowledge that now. So that's a huge piece. And then, of course, how to support girls, knowing that they're good at camouflaging, that they're masking. We need to get in there much earlier to identify what the difficulties are and to help them so that they don't end up developing, you know, anxiety and mental health difficulties down the line and that we get in much earlier. So there's a lot of research in that area too. Is there anything else coming out in uh, in the research just before we wrap up? So the other thing that's coming out is um, in terms of um, the cause of autism. I suppose a lot of people will come and ask around that, around you know, why do people get autism um, and is it from birth? And I suppose the answer so far, we've gotten as far as identifying that it is complicated in the research, but we are finding and identifying various genes 
that are um, contributing to, to autism in presenting in a person. So 15% of cases of autism appear to be associated with a type of gene mutation. Um, so that's very new in terms of what we're learning about autism. Now that doesn't always predict it presenting, but those mutations are being identified in families. Um, and then they've also identified that there's clusters of genes. Um, and one, one recent really large study identified up to 102 genes genes that was carried out by the International Autism Sequencing Consortium. So 102 genes that can be um, different in a person uh, with autism. And some of those genes they're found, they find overlap with things like learning difficulties or motor difficulties. Um, and then it can be less genes or more genes that are affected. So it really does truly show um, that from a genetic perspective, Autism does exist on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Lorraine, listen, thank you for joining us. My thanks to Lorraine Madden, a clinical director and chartered child and adolescent educational psychologist. That was the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast. If you want more information, you can check out the website, psychologicalsociety.ie, specifically the Find a Psychologist section. We'll see you next time.